Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today for wherever you're watching or listening from. This is your first time joining us. Hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. We fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thanks. We're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. We're continuing our study in the book of Daniel today, and I want to strongly encourage you to go back and watch and listen to any messages that you may have missed for a couple of key reasons. I think number one, they do tend to build on each other a little bit, just enough to help you link each event together. You'll see that here today. Uh, Two, I really believe you're going to be challenged and you're going to grow from these teachings. So make sure that you're all caught up and we're done here today. Go back and watch and listen episodes you might have missed and download the message notes uh, as well. We started in Daniel chapter one a couple weeks ago and we learned that when culture shifts, we need to follow the example of Daniel and his friends and stay firmly rooted in God. The result for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was they became 10 times uh, better advisors in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Uh, That elevates them to positions of authority uh, pretty quickly. And you're going to see that play out in chapter 2 and again here in chapter 3. In chapter 2, which we covered last week, we learned about the terrible dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Nobody could solve that dream, not even Daniel and his friends. And that's because the situation required God's power to be at work. Daniel gives all the credit to God as he reveals the dream and its meaning. And we learn that God is wise, he's powerful, and his kingdom will last forever. And Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel again. And in this time, Daniel uh, promotes his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they helped him. They prayed with him. They were very much a part of what Daniel was able to do for the king. And that actually leads us into chapter three here today. Um, Really, we're going to be at for the next couple of weeks. This is the first place in our study where we're going to have to split this up into two weeks because we just can't cover everything uh, that we need to cover in one week. So uh, Daniel 3 is going to get split up here. It also marks the first time we're going to get into some eschatology, which is the study of last things or the end times. Daniel's very much what we would call an apocalyptic book, as much as it is a narrative. So the the only book that's apocalyptic in nature is really Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. It's written entirely that way. Uh, That means that what Daniel's going to deal with uh, is some in-world type things um, in his book as well, since he falls into that category also. Now, I want to just encourage you, have an open mind as we get to that portion of the teaching today, especially in the latter half of Daniel later in the, in, in the series that we're in right now. Because a lot of folks, you know, when they, when they teach Daniel, they would rather teach the first half, you know, lessons and takeaways on life and living godly and leave the second half alone <laughs> because of all the apocalyptic language in it. But I think it's important that we tackle the whole thing, and here's why. A third of your Bible deals with predictive prophecy, both completed and still to come. The goal of understanding predictive prophecy and eschatology isn't so you can pinpoint events. I I believe God wants to encourage and warn us so that we're ready and we're prepared, and that should be our aim when tackling these subjects. And as your pastor, it's my job to equip you. And and I know without a doubt in the coming future, your faith, it will be tested, possibly in ways you've never experienced. And I have a responsibility to warn you about those days ahead so you can be equipped and ready. So let's jump into Daniel chapter 3, where we're going to learn about culture's greatest test 
today, and again, it's going to carry over into next week. Daniel chapter 3, verse number 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he sent messengers to the high officers and officials and governors and advisors, the treasurers, the judges and magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue that he had set up. And so all these officials came and stood before the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse number 4. Then a herald shouted, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn and the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Let's stop here uh, for today. So King Nebuchadnezzar sets up, he sets up a statue that has to be worshipped. We don't know much in the way of details. A lot of scholars believe the statue was inspired by the dream he had in the previous chapter. Um, I don't think he fashioned it after himself. Uh, the reason why is because Mesopotamian kings in ancient history did not view themselves as gods or equal to gods. They had immense power for sure, but they generally tried to separate the divine from humanity, and that included themselves. And nevertheless, though, the statue is, is, is there, and everybody's commanded to worship when the music begins to play. It's, it's one thing for an idol to be set up, and idolatrous worship to be encouraged, but for it to be front and center of all aspects of life, right? And, and that was kind of the norm in Babylon. You know, you would encourage that kind of worship. It was kind of everywhere. But it's another thing to be told you have to worship it, that, you know, that it's the law of the land. And here I just want to stop for a second and really warn you that I, I believe a day is coming in our lifetimes where this kind of thing will play out, where you will be told what and who and, and, and how you can worship. Now, when we get to Daniel chapter 6, we're going to see the exact same kind of thing play out, but there's going to be a few twists that make it a little bit different. I really believe, though, that you're going to find yourself in a place where you'll be asked to do something which goes completely against the very essence of your faith. And it may be subtle, and it may appear to be very well-meaning, but it will cause you to compromise your faith. And you know it, and God knows it, and everybody else knows it. Now, notice the motivation for worship of this statue is not, you know, love and adoration here, okay? What's the motivation for worship? It's fear, right? It's fear. If you don't worship, you'll die an excruciating death in a blazing furnace. <laughs> I want you to see something here today, that God's motivation for worship is always always love. Fear is never part of the equation. Coercion is never a component to worship. It's love. But the enemy's motivation is always fear. There'll be people who compromise their faith, not based on convictions and principles, but based on fear. They're afraid of what could happen, maybe to them or their friends or their family. And that fear drives them to make exceptions and compromise their faith. And that's a sign that we're really living kind of in the end here, okay? Now, now, to be fair, like we've been living in the end since Jesus ascended to heaven in the book of Acts. We've been living in what we call the last days ever since then. It's been happening for a long time. But let's just remember something real quick here, though. Um, time for us might seem forever, but for God, it's pretty short. In fact, the psalmist says a day of the Lord is like a thousand years. One of the first goals the enemy has when, 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 when worship comes into place, to get you to worship or to do something uh, which you don't believe in. And then enact consequences if you don't give in. So the core conflict of Daniel chapter 3, and really all of Scripture, centers on this battle over worship. You know, the end times doesn't have its roots in the end, but in the beginning, 
before humanity even set foot on this earth. Do you know that? Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they both tell parts of the same story of how Lucifer, an angelic being that we now call Satan or, or, or the devil, right? How he fell from heaven. He was full of pride. He had a desire to be worshipped as God was. And in fact, he was, and many scholars believe, in charge of worship uh, towards, towards the Lord. So when you read about all the crazy looking creatures and elders and angels who worship God date, night and day in Revelation, think of Lucifer because his job was to orchestrate all of that. So multiple times in Isaiah 14, he makes mention of his desire to be worshipped and to ascend to God's throne. I want to read it to you real quick. Isaiah 14, verse number 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroy the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. But instead, you'll be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. What does God do in this rebellion? Well, he casts Lucifer out of heaven. There isn't any real certainty about when it happened, but a pretty good theory takes place that says it happened between Genesis chapter 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, where you read that God creates the heaven and the earth, but the earth is formless and empty. Um, one of the things that God did in establishing order, though, in the creation story was He created humanity and assigns the role of worship away from Lucifer. We see this all throughout Scripture, right? To mankind. Humanity possesses the role that Lucifer once had. Think about this for a moment. We have a deep love for music as human beings, don't we? We're, we're consumed by it. We're impacted by it. It changes our mood and our outlook. God gave us instruments, our voices and our hands. Psalm 150 says, For everything which has breath, praise the Lord. That's what we're created to do. Like we were made to worship God forever. Our role in heaven is not to sit on clouds, grow the big cupid bellies, fly around with our wings. No, we're going to worship God day and night, forever and ever with the rest of creation. This whole thing started with a battle over worship. And I'm telling you today, it will end with a battle over worship as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Read this real quick. Don't be fooled by what they say. This is Paul writing. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, another name for that is the Antichrist in the New Testament, is revealed. He's the one who brings destruction and he'll exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He'll even sit in the temple of God claiming that he's God himself. Now in writing this letter to the Christians in Thessalonica, Paul's warning them of a day and near the end where the Antichrist will come and oppose everything that God has set into place, including his followers, Christians, but also other folks of different faiths. You kind of saw that in the, in the text there a little bit. He's going to exalt himself because his goal is to place himself at the center of all worship. Now notice that Paul mentions it takes place in a temple. There's not a temple any longer in Jerusalem. It was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. Will there be one? Well, we're going to talk about that later when we get to Daniel chapter 9. Let me take you to Revelation for a moment too, where you can see again in the Antichrist at the center of all worship. And this time he's referred to as the first beast in John's visions. Re Revelation chapter 13, 
verse number 14. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. And he ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to the statue so it could speak. And then the statue of the beast commanded anyone refusing to worship must die. Notice there's a similarity between Daniel chapter 3 and this passage in Revelation. Now again, everyone's forced to worship or face death. Worship's motivated by fear in both instances, right? So the Antichrist even forces people to take what Revelation calls a mark. Look at this, the very next verse, verse 16. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which is either the name of the beast or the number representing his name, which we later will find out is 666, which is humanity or mankind's number. So the enemy is so desperate for worship, he's so bent on forcing everyone to his will that he makes sure you can't even buy groceries, you can't pay your bills, you can't do anything without conforming to him. Now let me stop here for a moment and just talk about this because it's the only place I think we're going to address this topic in this series. So I just want to take a little bit of time to walk through it. We don't know what this mark is, all right? Nor are we sure if it's even something physical. So I, I want you to have an open mind here. Remember that, open mind. If you happen to think it's literal, like a literal tattoo or a chip or whatever, that's fine. It, it could be. We just don't know. I want to caution you too with this, that apocalyptic literature is not meant to be taken literally. Uh, there might be some literal aspects to it, but the majority is meant to be figurative, meaning it represents something. So I personally don't believe, and this is me, um, this mark is some kind of chip or anything physical, all right? I know we have chips in our pets. Um, some of the Scandinavian nations like Sweden are already allowing folks to voluntarily have identification chips inserted into their bodies, that kind of thing. But I don't believe that's what we're talking about here. So let me share with you what my theory is, and, and we'll, we'll just move on. Okay, just, just to give you an idea, something to think about. So John seems to be describing an economic system from which there's just no escape. It's ironclad. One in which you can't even use the black market or bartering or cash or whatever um, to achieve your necessary ends to survive. It's a system in which there is complete and total control exerted by the Antichrist and his forces. Right now, in all the major economies of the world, there is a major push for digital currency. Now, I love tech, I'm a tech junkie, but I'm really concerned about this, and here's why. When you digitize all the currency, whatever system or government's responsible has complete control over every aspect of someone's life. You tell them what they can buy, what they can't buy. If you want folks to stop buying Reese cups because they're not healthy, <laughs> okay, that would be terrible, right? Uh, then every time you try to buy a Reese cup, you know what's going to happen? Your transaction won't go through because you can't buy it. Your money can be taken out of your account in an instant without warning, without any kind of delay or waiting period. Why? Because, well, there's no cash. Everything is just ones and zeros. And so it's just gone, poof, like that. Uh, you can force folks to spend with negative interest rates eating away at their savings. You can track every single solitary transaction that's ever made. Nothing is private or hidden. Now, you might, might be wondering, so, okay, well, Pastor, that's because crazy will never happen. And, and even if it did for some crazy reason, I can still barter coffee, you know, chickens, whatever. You know, I can, I can get around it. You could if it weren't for another important component 
being developed in sync to work with a digitized currency called ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Score. You are right now, without even knowing it, being assigned an ESG. So all the major banks, the most of the largest corporations, and many national governments, including our own, are crunching numbers and beginning to assign and roll out ESG scores. They've already started with the largest companies in the world and in investment firms. Um, you, you, if you notice, if you have a Merrill Lynch account, you might see ESG scores assigned to stocks and, and funds. Eventually, they're going to roll out to you too. Now, why does this matter? Because ESG sounds, you know, fine on the surface, and, and you know, maybe, maybe it is. But the intent is for your ESG score to determine things like getting a loan. How much of a loan, what interest rate, I mean, you can't even really get one. It's based on factors like how green is your investment portfolio, how green is your house, did you donate or work with social justice groups to ensure we live in an equitable society, did you vote uh, at all, and did you vote for the right kind of candidate or party we would want you to vote for. And I know if you're hearing this for the very first time, this sounds so wild and crazy and out there and you probably think I'm nuts. However, it's been in place in China for the last several years, and it's worked almost to perfection. And the reason you can't barter your way out of, you know, around digital currency with ESG is because your ESG score will rise and fall based on who you interact with also. So if you're hanging out with the wrong people and engaging in whatever seems to be the trendy thing not to do at the moment, your score gets lowered, which impacts your economic ability, and the dominoes keep falling from there. This is how you create a system, by the way, which locks everybody into place and exerts absolute control over every single aspect of somebody's life. It's how you can ostracize and isolate people who aren't complying. And my point is not to freak you out or get political or anything like that. I just want you to see how even right now, there are forces at work to create a framework system which can easily be used for nefarious purposes by the wrong person or persons that are out there. And I think this is the kind of system you know, that's being built right now in other nations, even our own, that's more in line with what John's talking about right here in Revelation. Now, is it going to come next week? No. But I think it's coming. And I really believe it, it will probably come in our lifetimes. It's just something to watch for and just, just kind of think about. All right? So the enemy's motivation for worship is fear. And God's motivation, well, it's love. And something the enemy is constantly trying to do is exalt man above God. He wants you to worship anything other than God, so he helps you find things which you think are worthy of worship. So in our culture, we have folks who assign worth, so worship is, assigning worth to something, um, to whatever makes them feel good. And so much of our world is based on feelings and personal empowerment. Things like, you know, well, this is what I feel, this is my experience, this is my truth. And there's no standard for actual and absolute truth. You know, each person creates their own truth from their own lived experience. And if you're defining and setting up your own truth, well, then you're putting yourself in a precarious situation where you're actually playing a role and honestly reserved for God. If the enemy can't get worship, then he certainly wants to prevent God from getting worship as well, right? So he's going to redirect you in any possible way that he can to assign more work to things other than God. So stuff like, you know, sports, jobs, finances, relationships, those types of things that can get your worship off of God onto something else. And this is a battle which is going to rage until the kingdom of God physically comes to this earth. So the greatest test culture will throw at you centers on who you're going to worship. Mark 12, 30, uh, Jesus gives a command that's known as the great commandment. So he, he says this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. 
How can you make sure that worship is being directed in the right place? Well, consider some questions from the Great Commandment. So let's start with your heart. Are your affections and emotions moving in the right direction? What do you love the most? What do you express love for the most? What about your mind? What do you think about the most? What, what dominates your thoughts? Because whatever dominates your thoughts actually becomes what you're truly devoted to the most. And this would include, you know, worship, which remember is assigning worth to something. What about your strength? What are you doing for God right now? You know, we put so much energy into other activities, but what do we put into our relationship with God? If you find that you've emptied the tank with nothing left to give back to God, then your priorities are probably not in the right place. And the worth you're assigning God isn't nearly as high as you thought it was. The greatest battle in the end is for what and who you will worship. It started in Genesis. It's going to end in Revelation. You know, we're, we're notorious in the South for including God in our lives. God's all over the place, right? But we don't give God the best of our lives. And I want to encourage you today to give God the best. Assign the greatest value and worth to Him. You know, like it or not, you're caught up in the very thick of a battle for worship. And the question you have to answer here today, and the question that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to answer in Daniel 3, is where is your worship devoted to? We're going to come back to Daniel 3 next week. We're going to jump headlong into the actual story. But this question on worship is so, so vitally important today. And so I, maybe you're watching or listening right now. And you just say, Pastor, you know what? I'm thinking about some things in this teaching, and I realize that I've not been assigning God the worth that I should. Like, my worship is not where it needs to be. And I want to change that. I, I, I want to make sure that that, that I'm giving him the best. I want to make sure that my heart, my soul, my strength, it's all lined up where it needs to be. I want to make sure that as the, as, as, as the times kind of careen towards the end and things get tougher and the world seems to be kind of moving that way, that no matter what comes my way, I don't give in to fear. I worship with love. I worship with just in, intense gratitude for the Lord with a heart that's all belonging. Maybe, maybe that's you today. Say, so I, I, I want to make sure I'm doing that. Fantastic. Here's what we're going to do. I want to pray for you. If you happen to be, you know, watching and listening and you're in a place where you can pray with me, go ahead and do that. If you're driving, if you're working out, kind of get, you know, you can't stop and do that kind of thing. But just pray along with me the best of your ability if you can. But pray with me. I'm going to model a prayer for you to say. And then I want to pray for those of you who are already believers and you're already following Christ and your heart belongs to the Lord, that you'll stand firm and continue to assign the worth that God deserves, that worship would be at the highest level. So, Father, I thank you for who you are and your goodness and grace. Lord, I pray for those right now who are watching and listening and say, man, I want to give my worship over to God. I, 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 how do I do that? And so right now, Lord, I pray that you'd begin to forgive them of the sins they've committed. If that's you, you just want to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. God, forgive me for the wrong that I've done, all the things I've done, God, that, that go against you and your standards. Lord, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for these things. Uh, that don't align with you. I pray for your forgiveness in my life. I, I pray, God, that you would hit the reset button. Give me a brand new start in my life today. And Lord, now that we've, we, 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 I've done that, I pray that you would direct me, that you would guide me from this day forward. That, Lord, I, I don't want to call the shots anymore. I don't want to lead myself. I want you to lead me, and I promise, I commit today, I'm going to follow you from this day forward. I'm not going to do my own thing anymore. I'm now going to serve you, 
and follow your lead wherever that happens to be. But from this day forward, God, I'm yours. And Lord, for those who are already believers today, man, and they're, they're, they're listening today, they're watching today, and uh, times are going to get tough. Times are going to get more difficult as we move closer to your return. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stay committed to giving you the best parts of our lives, our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind. May it all just be the best, not the leftovers, God, and we give you the best. May we assign the greatest worth to you. May our worship for you, Lord, uh, be a daily occurrence, not just something we do when we gather with our church community each week, but, Lord, something that we do every single day giving you worship, God, in how we live our lives, giving you worship in how we serve others, giving you worship, God, yes, with song and singing and, and instruments, but, but Lord, giving you worship in every literal aspect that we have of our lives. May it all just be devoted to you. Paul tells us that our lives are living sacrifices, living offerings of worship. May we live that way uh, for you, God, going forward. And I just pray nothing would be in competition for that, that, God, our, our hearts and our lives would be uh, aligned together, giving you the best assigning you the highest worth, giving you the worship you deserve. We love you. We praise you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Hey, we said that prayer. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.